Welcome to the Nonprofit Hero Factor, a weekly live video broadcast and podcast where we'll be helping nonprofit leaders and innovators create more heroes for their cause and a better world for all of us. Ding. Welcome, everybody, to the Nonprofit Hero Factory. I'm excited to have a new type of guest on the show, someone talking about an issue that I think is totally important, absolutely relevant to the work that we do, but hasn't really been discussed enough, and it's something I'm passionate about. So I'm really excited to learn from our guest today. He is Luis Diaz. He is the executive director of the Muhlenberg Fund at Muhlenberg College and is the host of the Donor Participation Project, which we're going to learn from today. He's an expert in annual fund development, digital fundraising, and engagement strategies. Prior to Muhlenberg, Lewis was leading annual fund development at the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, at Johns Hopkins SAIS, and at Maryville College in Tennessee. Of varied interests, Lewis holds an MBA from CUNEF, a PhD in business administration from Universidad Rey Juan Carlos, both in Spain, and an MM in music performance from the University of Tennessee. Lewis describes his superpower as building communities of purpose that energize donors and raise both donor participation and major gifts, topics that are incredibly important, I think, to every organization out there today. And I'm excited to bring Lewis onto the show to talk about that. Hey, Lewis. Hi, Boris. Thanks so much for having me here. Thanks so much for being here. As I said, I'm really excited to, to have you on. I am a huge proponent, uh, advocate, if you will, uh, about uh, on the topic of building communities. I think they are absolutely critical. Social media is often thought of as a community, but rarely used as one. Mm-hmm. People throw that term around and then don't really know what that means or how to back it up or much less activate it. So I'm excited to learn from you today. But before we dive into all that, I read your bio, love your superpower. Mm-hmm. Give me a bit of your story. Why do you do the things that you do today? So it's so funny. I was um, graduating from my master's. I was thinking I was going to be a musician. Um, and I, I, I worked as, as that for a little while. Um, but I was doing a really interesting internship in New York uh, at the Lincoln Center. So I, you know, I was actually putting stands. You can't put stands on stage, but preparing coffee for the orchestra. Um, there's lots of rules. And I discovered our CEO at the time was a fantastic fundraiser. And I kind of discovered the fundraising development, advancement, whatever you call it, as a a kind of a wonderful place because it's, you know, mission oriented. It can be very technical if you want it to. It can be very humanistic, you know, or it should be humanistic. Um, It kind of just has everything. If you're a people person, then there's a place for you. If you're a data person, there's a place for you. So I felt really um, like it all came together for me in in this work, you know. So the the mission and the data and the people, it's kind of beautiful. Awesome. So like so many of us, you kind of came into the nonprofit space uh, through a side door, if you will, hoping to do something else that, uh, you know, I think arts are absolutely necessary for humanity and do a lot of good for humanity. And I think a lot of artists do find their way to nonprofit because it's a different way to serve humanity and also maybe not necessarily starve. (laughs) It's really tough being a musician. Yes. So um, I was playing with the Knoxville Symphony for a while and had a day job in fundraising at Maryville College, as as you mentioned, and um, having a son. 
and it's it's tough and you, you know it's uh, you, you see especially classical musicians uh, I, I can only imagine um you know coming from the world of theater and uh, acting and film it's uh, yeah i know i have friends who are on tv shows you would recognize them and they're still working in restaurants so wow. it, yeah yeah it's a tough tough thing so i'm glad you found your way to nonprofit though and i'm glad that you uh we're able to combine your various interests, as you said, into doing the things that you do. So let's talk about that. What is it that you're doing out there? Tell me about the work that you do today. So uh, right now I'm the director of the annual fund at Muhlenberg College, which is a fantastic institution in Eastern Pennsylvania. Um, so that we have, uh, I, I, uh, I manage a team of, of seven fantastic professionals. And we raise money for uh, unrestricted accounts at the, at the college. So basically, um, donations that go to work right away have an impact imme and immediately. Um, on kind of on the side, um, about a year and a half ago, I started getting together with a group of fundraisers in what has turned into kind of a community. And maybe we can talk about what that even means, right? Uh, as you as you pointed out, Boris. Um, but essentially, we just started getting together to discuss how we could support each other and how we could learn about increasing donor participation, which, as I'm sure you've talked about and um, and folks in, that listen to your show know, um, there are less and less donors every year giving to nonprofits. You know, definitely doesn't mean that people are less generous in any way or that um, that, you know, giving through Facebook is a bad thing. Right. But giving to nonprofits itself um, has has been on the decline for the last decade or two decades. Um, and, you know, we, we were thinking, well, nobody has solved this and maybe it's up to us now. So it, it definitely is up to nonprofits and up to nonprofit development and communications um, staff people passionate about the subject to solve this problem. I will say there's a new report out. Um, Last week, I had a guest on, Tim from Neon One, and uh, they just released a report that actually says that during the pandemic, individual giving did go back up. And so it's a positive trend. The issue is, and I think today's episode is going to play right into that. So for those of you at home, go back and listen to the previous one right after you listen to this one. Uh, but the issue is that communications is not capable or not currently effectively maintaining relationships, establishing strong relationships and tying into identity in order to keep donors donating after they've given the first time, which is often in response to a particular cause, like right now, Ukraine or the pandemic over the last couple of years. So people will give and then they'll disappear. And from an individual nonprofit's perspective, there's going to be a lot of decline. So community, I think, can definitely help solve that problem. If not 100%, then get us a lot of the way there. Let's talk about that. What does that mean, community, when okay. it comes to donors? Absolutely. So I'll, I'll give you a little bit like more background and uh, about how I came into this philosophy. But um, so at Muhlenberg, and uh, I was working a lot with as folks that maybe are more familiar with academic fundraising classes and looking at other schools who are doing well. Um, and then at the same time in the donor participation project, we were having uh, people like a, um, a Harvard uh, researcher from the, the Harvard Divinity School talk to us about how communities 
um, how millennials were flocking to some types of organizations. And it wasn't necessarily nonprofits, things like CrossFit, um, you know, Peloton, you know, just organizations that were really capitalizing on this community. Church, you know, some churches. So even though overall religious participation is also on the decline, um, there, there, there are really successful cases out there. Um, and a, a quote that she shared with us that really stuck with me was, I came for the whatever, workout, dinner, conversation, but I stayed for the community. So community is one of those things that's um, kind of a stickiness factor, right? It's what makes people stick around. And that's the whole problem. It's what probably Tim was sharing with you. And um, the, the research that um, you know he, he's involved with is, is, is amazing, but um, it's keeping people around where that we struggle with, right? And um, I started to develop a theory and started to also read a lot. And I have a book here. I don't know if I'm supposed to do this on the show, but you know, get together, really good book for people. Um, and kind of came on the definition. It's a working definition. So if, if folks, if you boys even like have improvements, I, I, I'd love to talk about it, but it's communities when people get together in ways that are participatory. So it's two ways, right? Purposeful. So it's about a purpose. So sometimes there are communities that kind of get together just there's a very famous book, uh, The Influencers, something, you know, about people getting together just to make dinner. And that's, you know, cool. But, you know, what's the purpose, um, especially for nonprofits um, recurring? So that's a really big one. So it's these people that get together on a recurring basis in a way that creates an expectation and a habit. So I'm a part of this and I get together every month, every week, uh, every time I open my phone and I scroll through my Facebook feed. Um, so that that's an element. And then the fourth one is it identifies leaders. So no nonprofit staff, no community host is going to be able to do all the work that needs to get done. So they're going to have to ask for help and support others in achieving uh, those goals. So I, I turned that into an acronym, which is PPRI. It's not great, but you know what we have. We'll work on some uh, fancy backronym for it, where we'll first pick a word and then we'll reverse engineer it <laughs> to match what you're trying to say, because I, I really like everything you just laid out there, starting with this concept of CrossFit, which CrossFit really is community. It it thrives on that. I know I've never uh, been part of a CrossFit, but I do know a lot of people who were at least for a while. I don't know how it is right now, post or through and post pandemic. Mm -hmm. They were fanatical about it, right? It becomes a part of your identity. You are someone who does CrossFit. You belong to a chapter in CrossFit. And I know that um, I have friends who, who told me about this. They would sign up. And then if they didn't show up for a couple of days, somebody would call them and say, hey, we haven't seen you. Where, where are you? And, and then they might even, you know, take it to the next level and, and reach out to you other ways to, to get you back in the door, keep you going. And it works despite the fact that a lot of people get injured doing CrossFit, but I'm not going to know about that. So definitely not endorsing injuries, but it's a very weird thing where I started to apply some of this that we were finding to our little group, the donor participation project. And it started those same things you're talking about. I, I never kind of reflected on them, but it started to happen to me. So we had sessions. And when I forgot to schedule the session, people would say, Hey, I thought we were doing this, you know, this coming Wednesday, because it's like what we always do. And they were calling me to task. So it it's something like human, you know, it's based on human nature. It, it does work. So 
I'm kind of going to flip the script a little bit here. Usually uh, I want to know, all right, well, how do we make this work? And then what are the results? But in this case, I want to flip it around. I want to say, all right, what results have you seen from building these types of communities? Because yep. I really want people to understand and, you, and I'm sure my audience is pretty intelligent in the first place, but I just want to highlight what is the benefit of doing this. And then let's talk about what's the work involved to get it done. Okay, so sometimes it's, and in development, sometimes we get stuck on what's the ROI of this specific thing, right? I'm gonna send this one letter, how many dollars came out of it? I'll give you the big picture. Um, at Muhlenberg last year, um, as a, you know, in the ranking of uh, alumni participation, so as a percentage, how many student you know, alumni give to the school, we climbed into the top 100 for the first time. So, um, you know, we, we've been climbing, so, and we've been able to, um, reverse that declining trend. So that's really good. Was it 100% this? Did we not solicit people, you know, some, you know, yeah, no. I mean, yes, we did solicit people. So uh, like, don't think that sometimes people say, Lewis, you know, does that mean that we just stop, you know, asking people for money? No, absolutely. Exactly. I see Boris kind of. No, it's no. not a panacea and nobody can, nobody should expect that this actually replaces everything else that you do, but there are benefits to it, right? Exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of sharing things I noticed. Did we have the largest fundraising year um, in, in for our for our annual fund? You know, in the history of the of, of the organization, yes. Was that again 100%? No. Was there a pandemic and lots of people were giving making big gifts? Yes. Was the largest donor in the history of the college part of one of the communities that are is just the best one we have you know it's a class we so when we talk about this in a bit I'll, I'll i'll share that we organize these communities by classes right um and that's the best one that we have and kind of the model for the others well that's also true you know is there a one-to-one of -one? what exactly caused that gift you know i think like it's kind of like a preponderance of evidence thing you know it's it, it looks like a duck smells like a duck sounds like a duck it feels like that's the right direction okay so it helped the school get to its highest participation, highest uh, donation levels so far in, it, in its history. Um, we don't have a direct causal connection, but there is a lot of corollary evidence is basically what you're saying. Yes, right? and especially if you're working it. So what I love about it is that it also really kind of changed a little bit of the dynamic. Um, and you know, we did tie it in with switching our model to asking for monthly gifts first. Um, so, but when you're in that model, kind of the feedback that you get is so totally different because you you know, you're not like always just the face that shows up to ask for a gift and then get the angry kind of response. You're more, it feels more like you're a part of something. Um, so that was an added benefit, um, as well. We applied all of this to, you know, our fundraiser community and that has been growing very well. And again, the qualitative feedback is, is, you know, fantastic people, you know, post love messages on LinkedIn about what we are and what we mean, which is, you know, great. Why do you think that works? Why do you think building community? I mean, we talked, you talked about, of course, the CrossFit and the kind of uh, elements of community, but what are the benefits of community? Why do people want to be part of your alumni network for their given class or something? What do they get out of it? So there's the benefits for the person that's in the community and then there are the benefits for the organization. For the person yeah. that's in the community, well, I would say that we have a, a very deep need for that. There used to be civic organizations. There used to be, uh, and there's this book, right? Bowling Alone, I think. 
um, that talks about how all of that like social fabric has gone away, um, but that people still need it. Um, and the, you know, um, so it speaks to kind of a, like a very basic human need. Essentially, it just feels good uh, for people, for the organization. Um, it makes people retain, so they stay around, um, which means that more of them stay around giving. It reduces your, I call them like donor service, the customer service costs, you know? Mm -hmm. So instead of having to be staff always one-on-one -on -one, uh, being the, the, the interface with the donor, um, you have a group of people and they can answer their own questions or create their own content and support each other in that way and stay connected in that way. So, um, and then if you're aligned with the purpose and it's clear that, you know, you're th this group is there to support each other, but also support the cause, um, it makes, it creates an environment that's very helpful for kind of major gift conversations. That sort of thing just starts to kind of surface. I really appreciate and I like how you think that you broke down uh, what's good for the actual members of the community and what's good for the organization as a whole. Because when it comes to marketing, when it comes to promoting anything that you're doing, I go through this with students, with organizations that I'm working with all the time. They focus on what it's going to do for them rather than what it's going to do for the actual people involved. And you can't sell it on the features or, and you can't sell it on what it's going to do for you. Benefits. You've got to basically sell it on what it's going to do for them. And they can network. They can um, maintain some sort of connection to their past. They can maintain some sort of connection to the work. They could do more for you in, in other ways, right? So I would imagine that it's easier to get volunteers out of a community than it is out of a um, out of an email list that, that you just blast out to. Yeah. Because they're already connected and you keep at top of mind for them. So they are regularly thinking of you, not just once a year when you reach out to them at the end of the year or something. Yeah. And like, even if you look at, there was somebody posting on LinkedIn the other day who said, well, we probably, I, you know, somebody said, I'm going to venture to say that we don't send enough emails as a nonprofit. So then and then, you know, I was thinking, well, what's the quality and what type of email? I mean, it's like the devil is in the details. So if you see that the number of communications and emails that a community generates and it's all well received, it's useful. People find it helpful. It's value providing. Uh, but it does help you increase that very organically. Awesome. So let's get into it then. What does it take to build a community? What, first of all, what does a community even look like? I'm assuming at this point we're talking technology, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking digital platforms, although community should, if it can, bleed over into the real life, uh, IRL, as the kids call it. <laughs> but how do you define community and the systems that support it? That's a really interesting question, Boris. I, I think for folks that have been involved in, in fundraising for a while, this isn't really so new. It's more you know, I think of it more as taking that model of the experience that we provided to board members, to maybe, you know, very smaller groups, a campaign advisory group, things like that, and extending that to more people. So as you said, it can be in real life, it can be digital, that people do need a place to get together. Can that be um, a auditorium? Can that be a Discord channel? Can that be a Facebook chat, you know, LinkedIn group? I, I think, you know, you, you get the gist. Um, it can really be anywhere. And that's why I always sometimes 
feel a little bit, um, you know, hesit is not hesitant to recommend, but it's like, well, it's more of the how you do it than exactly what it is. You know, you just need a place for people to get together. But how do you choose that place then? Because there are all those different channels that you just talked about with the Slack and Discord and Facebook and um, all right. kinds of groups out there that that exist, right? And then there's the independent platforms that you could spin up yourself, right? That's really good. I would definitely call Boris and ask him for advice on this matter <laughs> because I'm not an expert. Um, I would say I've been opportunistic. So I kind of went with what was either available or where I saw people where I saw people were already. So some of our younger groups said, we live in LinkedIn because we're in that, at that age in life where our career is everything. So we, I said, okay, let's do a group. It gets really hard to manage. And maybe we can talk about it where like, you need to kind of think through, are you gonna do one big community? It's like, you know, your donor community, or are you gonna have different groups, especially as the, in larger nonprofits or in more established nonprofits, where you have your people that are interested in sports or in this type of biomedical research or, you know, so yeah. it can get hard to manage. Yeah, all donors are not the same. They all have different interests and they have different interests related to your cause. They have different reasons for supporting you in the first place. They might have different motivations. And so if you could give them a community of fairly like-minded folks, rather than, you know, you have a community around sports and a bunch of people talking bowling and I just want to talk about basketball, I'm not really going to want to stick around, right? Exactly. So that's where um, we... we we talk about kind of having a content, well, the content strategy, the content, you know, content first approach to building these things is really important and it ties into the purpose, right? Um, but just having uh, a clear area that's you vote, that you have a group that's large enough to, you know, make this worthwhile, but also that's united by enough of a common themes. And it could be, you know, um, it can be, I mean, you can think very creatively. It can be according to things people do, uh, like playing a sport. It can be according to their age, you know, if, if that works. But if they're all interested in, in something like, I don't know, providing scholarships to first generation students or something like that. So we're talking basically bucketing or segmenting based on either psychographics and interests or on demographics, right? Age and uh, other aspects like that, geography, perhaps. Whatever yeah. is most... Um, natural i guess to the groups that you're working with uh, i appreciate you said go ahead and call boris and ask him which platform to use but you kind of answered it yourself already uh it is a much more extensive exercise to really go through it but the question is where are the majority of your people already congregating don't make them adopt a new tool think of checking in at a new place that's a very high barrier high friction point for people to overcome if they're already mostly on facebook then maybe that's the answer if they're already mostly on LinkedIn or it feels more natural because it's a professional kind of group to be on LinkedIn. Great. Wherever they're going to associate it or if they're younger kids and they've got a bunch of discords already up, well, let's throw them into another one. Let's give them a new one to, to play in, if you will. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, and then the next step is kind of know that once you have that town hall platform or, you know, that place that you're going to have to feed the community with content. Um, and there, you know, I, I saw this with the donor participation project. I would take the content from our sessions and from everything that we were learning, but then somebody has to like be feeding that constantly back to the group out in the world. It's also kind of your recruiting tool. Um, and that's something that I find that lots of nonprofits, maybe they start with a platform 
and then they think that's going to magically create community, um, but it does take work. Yeah, if you build it, they will come is not real. <laughs> so, or at least they won't stick around, right? Uh, so there is this role that I know a lot of organizations have, nonprofits, for-profits, which is this community manager, and it's their job to maintain this community. And it does take resources, right? It's either somebody's time or it's a new person that you bring on just for that role. So there's definitely some investment in there, but what should they be doing? What are the types of content that work when it comes to keeping a group interested and active? I mean, I guess there's a lot of um, per group nuance here and, you know, lots of cultural, you know, the culture of each specific group. I, you know, I can speak from experience um, that you don't think that this is something that has to go through your marketing department and be finessed to death, something as simple as photos of back in the day. And then that starts a thread and they start sharing photos and it goes on for, you know, 20 emails. Um, just, you know, asking questions, surveys, um, letting people, letting everybody see the answers to the questions. Um, you know, so it's a little bit of lots of the nonprofits that I've been at or worked with have, have this kind of marketing approach where everything has to be perfect on brand and, you know, 100% ready to go out in the world. This is more of kind of like a family chat feeling. Um, and that tends to work, I found. And you're saying things like, you know, make, let people see the results of surveys that they're taking, make it a two-way conversation, but also make it feel like everybody's getting to know everybody. It's not just they're giving your organization information about themselves that you could later use for marketing, right? It's actually, which by the way, you could be doing that at the same time, um, but it's actually them getting to know each other and feeling more comfortable and confident with each other and getting value from each other at the same time, right? So another of the great benefits, and this is for both the people who participate and the organization, is that communities build trust. Um, and uh, you know, I've read some research that it's actually one of the better ways to do it. It's really hard to get somebody to trust you based on ads or brochures or letters that you're sending them. But when people get together to do something around a common purpose, um, it's much easier to turn kind of minds and hearts around. Yeah. Um, they get emotionally invested. They get. Uh financially invested they get um what do you call it when they invest their own time into it right they feel mm -hmm. like they're getting more value and they're investing more of themselves into it so they have more ownership more stake at the table when it comes to your organization's work and success that's totally it boris and you described it i mean that sounds like your ideal donor i mean doesn't it you know somebody who's invested so it kind of, it's you're kind of like creating the the, the environment to um, so that doesn't mean that you don't need major gift officers. In fact, your content leaders and your thought lead, internal thought leaders and your you know, gift officers ideally should be a part of these communities, you know, kind of be embedded in them. So there's one particular aspect and um, we're coming up on time here, but I really want to get into and see what you have to share, which is, is there a way to actually solicit donations without feeling like you're just asking for money within a community. Okay, I'm gonna tell you a secret. Everybody hates to be solicited, but everybody loves to be recognized. So um, just do that. That's, I mean, I, I like when I work with volunteers and they say, I never want to ask somebody for money. I, I said, I promise you won't have to, you know, but you can elevate people you can publish lists of donors. I mean, what is Facebook? But one long list of who liked what, you know, or who did what. Um, and it works, you know, 
Uh, so that's that's an easy kind of evolution, right? So what does that do? Do you put out, uh, let's say you're uh, a community on Facebook, do you put a post up that says, hey, thank you so-and-so for the amazing donation and here's what it'll help us do? So one of our most successful efforts um, was our fiscal year closes on June 30. We, we, our communities are organized and we didn't cover this for us on, on Google Groups. So, um, which is kind of low tech really, it's basically listservs. Um, we shared the honor roll, which is what we call the donor list for each specific community, for each class um, on it. And the, the, you know, the gifts. And then we said, well, thank you so much to all of those. This was a thank you message. If you haven't given, no, you still have time, head over here and we'll update this. And they didn't drove. So that was really powerful. It was, it, you know, and then people say, well, you put out this donor list and it doesn't work in this way. Well, sometimes I find that they do this in the annual, like the, the, the premise is that people recognize each other, that they feel part of the same group, not some random list of 500 names. That is so important and powerful. If you are part of a community, you want to do what everyone else in the community is doing. There is a social contract of sorts that, that you feel you need to uphold your end of it and you want to compete or match what others are doing, match the expectations upon you. So if you see this role, this honor role, this donor list of people in your class and you see, oh, wait, most people or a lot of people in my class are giving, well, I, I mean, I should too, I can, it's clearly important, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. That, yeah, you, you, you hit it on the nail boards. That's, I mean, and I'd be interested to hear from you. Do you see applications for this model to other, you know, of course I, my, my background is in the, maybe the arts and one is in one type of, or a couple of types of nonprofits. Do you see this as applicable to other types of nonprofits? Oh, absolutely. I mean, every organization should cultivate some sort of community for their clients, their donors, their volunteers, and crossing over between them, depending on how you define your segments, if you will. But even without the community, I mean, I always teach, you want to be sharing stories. You want to be sharing success stories. You want to be sharing stories of donors. Hey, I did this and now I see this out in the world and I feel so much better. I can sleep better at night because I gave to this and I saw that it had some sort of an impact, right? Mm -hmm. What you're doing when it's inside of a community is really amplifying that within an echo chamber, exactly. an echo chamber for good, as opposed to so many of the ones that are currently happening right now online. So yeah, every organization could be doing this. Totally. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, maybe a last point kind of for, for thought is, and I haven't figured this out, right, is what is the metric? for success. You know, we look at our donor retention, obviously, um, you know, but also if, as you mentioned, there's a community manager that does this, please do give them like ownership on a metric on something, not just have it be kind of a random expendable role that, that you have in the shop. I mean, I think. Yeah, I, I do always like to focus on metrics and I think donor retention would be a great one to measure and see how well is it working of the people who are in the community, how many of them are staying and giving regularly, because again, it's that identity thing, which is key. And then some of the other KPIs would be, you know, how many people per month or per whatever cycle you want to measure mm -hmm. are actually adding content, how many people are checking in and reading content, right? That is a engagement metric that's pretty straightforward to download from whatever app that you're currently using. 
I think would be would be great to measure and track and give your community manager some some goals. Hey, can we increase this? Can we bring in more people um, and have them engaging around more things? Hey, surveys seem to be doing really well, right? Or hey, we put out a quiz and everybody shared it, right? Those those are dynamite when they when they work. Exactly. Very helpful. Thanks, Boris. I love all that. So. I don't want to uh, take too much more of your time, but I do want to ask, you did say you're on Google Groups, um, and I do like to ask everybody for some tools and resources. You also held up the book to uh, get together mm-hmm. earlier. Mm-hmm. Who's that by? How do we find that? Let's find this out. Um, uh, it's a group of folks. It's published by Strike Press, and I'm opening it right here. Okay, the authors are Bailey Richardson, Kevin Huen, and Kay Elmer Sato. Awesome. We will definitely find that book and link to it in the show notes. We'll also link to Google Groups so people can get started easily like you do. Um, what's your call to action for the folks that are listening, watching, or reading the transcript of this at home? So if you want to join a community of fundraisers who is really nice, smart, and we get together to solve a really big issue in our industry, um, head over to joindpp.org. So one word, joindpp.org. Um, and we'd love to have you. And kind of if you bring, you know, even just a lot of what you learn here with Boris um, to, to these conversations, um, I, I think people, you know, will, will be thrilled and, um, and, and you'll gain a lot too from that back and forth. As you should in a community. Awesome. So we're going to link to that, of course, too. If people want to follow up with you, where should they find you? What's what's your preferred community? <laughs> LinkedIn, for sure. And just look, look me up by name and title. Fantastic. And we always link to guests' uh, LinkedIn profiles anyway, so that's going to happen. And when we publish this post on LinkedIn, we're going we're gonna to tag you as well. So hopefully a lot of people are going to connect with you. I think this is really important and also really accessible yeah. content that people should be thinking about and and tactics that people hopefully will start to implement if they haven't or take the next step and level up if they're already doing it. And it really works, which also helps. That definitely also helps. Lois, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate having you on. You came on, you dropped a whole lot of value on us today, I think, that will hopefully get people thinking and working. And I hope that people do go and check out the Donor Participation Project because the more you can contribute, the more you can learn, the more the rising tide lifts all boats. Well, thanks, Boris. Thank you for having me. I look forward to uh, learning from you even more. Awesome. And thank you, everybody, for joining us at home. If you like this interview, do go ahead and share it with your friends. Leave us a review on iTunes, on Spotify, wherever you enjoy your content. And we look forward to seeing you again next time on The Nonprofit Hero Factory. Thank you all for watching and listening to The Nonprofit Hero Factory. We hope this episode has given you some ideas and strategies for creating more heroes for your cause and a better world for all of us. Please be sure to subscribe to this show on YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And let us know what you think by leaving a review. 